Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone that's gathered here. Gathered here in hope of the resurrection. Hallelujah. Well, I would like to speak about the resurrection this morning. And more than just uh, recounting the events of the resurrection, I would like to speak more specifically about that resurrection power in the life of a believer. That's how I've entitled it this morning. Resurrection power in the life of a believer. And as a bit of our theme verse, not necessarily uh, the text or the totality of the message, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now that is quite a mouthful, as we might say it. But the power that is there for a resurrection is probably beyond our words to express, really. We, it, it transcends our ability to, uh, first of all, comprehend, but even then to explain it. But we know and believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now that is just, in all of history, Nothing like it. Now there are, uh, and is coming, a day that will be like unto it when the dead will be resurrected from the grave. But let's consider just a bit this tremendous power and what it means and why it is such a, uh, both a central part of our belief and our faith and it's also a tremendous event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In our memory work there in First Peter, Peter makes reference to this at the very onset of his, his uh, epistle there, and he, he says that we have a living hope, meaning it's, it's alive, there's, there's something there it's it's vibrant it's working it's 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 not a false hope it's it's a reality it's a living hope why and how it's by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and then he goes on to say to an inheritance it's now future incorruptible it's undefiled it's reserved in heaven for us and we have this hope. 
And the only reason we have this hope is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise that that has brought to us. The resurrection of the dead. It was the the event that gave proof to everything that Jesus taught and said. He told them, his disciples, that he is going to be crucified. They're going to put him in the grave. He's going to be there three days, and then he will rise again from the dead. That seemed so strange, I think. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly that it seemed strange, but it was so out of their realm of thinking that they scarcely believed it when it did happen, or at least seemed to be in, in a bit of doubt and suspense whether it would really take place. But when it did, then their joy was overflowing. In his teaching, Jesus explained to them, as recorded there in John 10, 17 and 18, he said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now it is in the realm of possibility for a man to lay down his life for his friends. In fact, we're called to do that. Jesus did that. He laid down his life For his friends, it's a demonstration of his tremendous love for us. It is the demonstration of a man's love for someone else if he lays down his life for his friends. However, no mortal has the power to take it again. But Jesus did. He said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, of all of human history, there is one enemy that has not been conquered by mortals, and that is the enemy of death. Men have been healed of all manner of sickness. Men have recovered from sicknesses. And you can go on down the list, but man is not able to restore life. When life is gone, that's it. And that's because sin entered into the world. We go back to the account of Adam and Eve there in the garden when they sinned and transgressed the commandment of the Lord. God had promised that in that day they would die. And that is where spiritual death set in and the beginning of physical death. It does seem that God had not intended for them to die God intended for them to live forever. He had even planted a tree in the garden there called the tree of life. And by partaking of that fruit, they could live forever. But after the transgression and God's promise that they would die, 
that process began. There was certainly a spiritual death and a, and a beginning of a physical death that ultimately became the reality. God drove them from the garden so they could not uh, partake of that tree of life and live forever. But he also sent the promise that he would send a redeemer. Well, you know the story. I won't uh, go into all the details of it, but I, I want us to think this morning about the tremendous power of the resurrection. There were a few cases in the Old Testament where somebody who had been dead came back to life. It was only for a time. Ultimately, they died again. But for a short time, they came back and were able to to live and, and move again in this life. But... It was very evident that all men must die. Everyone dies, and when they die, they don't come back again. But those who were of faith believed the promise of God that there was coming a time when there would be a resurrection from the dead. Job had that faith. He recognized that this mortal body will will fade away and crumble into the dust and even maybe devoured of worms. But he said, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He believed in a resurrection. Even in Jesus' day, there were those who believed in a resurrection. Not all of them. The Sadducees, I believe it was, did not believe in a resurrection, uh, although the Pharisees did. But they had not seen a resurrection. And I thought it was interesting in the account there of Lazarus and his death and how he was a good friend of Jesus. And when Jesus came, those several days later, and he talked with Martha and Mary, and, and he was telling Martha that when, when she acknowledged that, yes, uh, there will be a day in the future that Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection which parallels what he had told his disciples, that he has power to lay down his life and he has power to take it again. Well, they scarcely believed or understood, but you know how Jesus raised him from the dead and he was alive. And he was there and he ate a meal with them. And later he came, Jesus came back to the house and, and had a meal there. But it's interesting what the Pharisees, their response to it. Now you would think, as the religious people who understood the scriptures or believed themselves to understand it, should have rejoiced. Amazing! A man come back from the dead! But you know what their reaction was? They were like, oh no, this is not going to work. Because if this keeps happening, we're going to lose our standing with the Romans. They're going to come and take away our place and our nation. 
we're going to come to Ruth. Now, if you stop and think, why would that bring their nation to Ruth? Why would the Romans be so opposed to it? Well, I think the key is that there was, behind it all, a clear recognition that this is not the power of men. There is a power of God that transcends any earthly power, including the power of the Romans. The Romans would have seen that as a threat to their rule and their control over the nation. If you have a man here who is able to raise the dead and keeps on doing that, all of the nation is going to believe him and they're going to follow him. And that means the end of the Romans' rule. So the Pharisees are thinking this through. If, if this keeps happening, the Romans are going to come, they're going to take away our place and our nation. And they concluded that it would really be expedient for one man to die rather than for the whole nation to perish. And of course, that man would need to be Jesus because he's the one who's getting us into all this trouble. And the scripture says that he did not realize that he was actually prophesying about the death of Christ and that it would be for the nation. And not just that nation, but also for all who would believe. All those even who were afar off, it says. So God was working through that, but, but you think about how their reasoning was. They recognized something tremendous when a man comes back from the dead and how it will overthrow the powers that be. Well, so it is. There is no power greater than the power to come back from the dead. Now there are many, many scriptures we could turn to. Uh, let me refer and, and mention a few. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10, it says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just what saves us today, but it's what it gives us a hope for the future. And Jesus Christ, in rising from the dead, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Revelation 1, verse 18, John had this revelation of the uh, exalted Christ, and this is what Christ said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. That's our Lord. He has the power. In Hebrews, it speaks of his death, and it says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
You see, fear, even fear of death, has bondage. And there is a sense in our mortality that we fear death. We fear it in the sense that we do what we can to avoid it. We take care of ourselves. We preserve, seek to preserve our life. But we also live with a hope that transcends this life by far. In fact, Paul, in several places, in several ways, he makes mention of this, this very thing. He says that if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Why is that? Because... Here we live a life of difficulty and trouble, tribulations and distresses. And Paul lived many of them. He was stoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was in peril on lands and sea. And he did it for the cause of Christ. Why? Because he had a hope that was far beyond this life. He said further that we don't look at the things that are temporal. We look at the things that are eternal. Because the temporal things are going to pass away. But the eternal things, that is what we live for. And then he said, because we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, if all we had to look for was just some nice life here and then the grave would be the end, yes, we would be very miserable. No hope? That leaves you very miserable. And you know, most of, most of the world, most of the humans on this planet have very little hope or no hope. When someone dies, they grieve as those who have no hope. Those who would accept the premises of evolution, that we are just a random um, chance that came about by some mystical process, they also have no hope. It precludes any hope of the hereafter. Because if this is how it came to be, then there is no transcendent end. It just, when we die, that's it. But I believe that's behind many of their thinking patterns and their, their goals. And, the, and, the, and I think particularly of this whole um, climate change thing and the save the planet concept and we've got to do something what's really underlying that is the concept that this is all we've got there, there's nothing nothing after this is gone and therefore a great fear that what's here might, might fade away well the scripture tells us clearly it will it's going to be changed. It's going to fold up as a vesture. It's going to pass away. It's going to be burned up. But that shouldn't be fearful for us, but rather reinforce that we have a hope that transcends this life. We have a living hope. 
Why? Because there is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for us. Paul mentioned that Christ is subduing all things to himself. All things have been subdued, but we don't yet see all things put under him. And then he mentions that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. See, we still live with the reality of death. It happens to our loved ones. It's a, it's a reality we face. And we simply accept that there are two parts of man. Or you maybe say three, you put down body, soul, and spirit. But there is the mortal part, that shell, that will pass away, is subject presently to decay and sickness and injury and, and ultimately death. But the spirit of man will live forever. And there is a place prepared. There's a place of bliss for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and there is a place of torment and anguish for those who live without God. The apostles in their Preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Hallelujah. The resurrection. I'd like to speak here of two points. In the rest of my message here, that relate to this resurrection power in the life of a believer. The first point is that the resurrection and that power that we have available to us changes our life. And in that change and transformation, it gives us power over sin change of life and a power over sin that is not present in any other way. The second point then is that it gives hope for the life to come. And that hope influences how we live today and why we do what we do and why we can live with joy and even anticipation Anticipation for that life to come in the face of great difficulties and trials and distresses and all the, all the things that aren't pleasant because we have a hope, a hope that transcends the present. So focusing on the first one here, it changes our life. We had that there in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, that verse I gave you, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? 
according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that power that allowed Jesus to take his life again, to re, um, renew that life in that mortal body, that very power is that same power that works in us. Paul said this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now just to put that in perspective, That tremendous power that raised up Christ from the dead, that power that he had in himself, that power that was given him of the Father, and that the Father has, it's, it's stated both ways in the Scripture that Christ took his life again and he received it from the Father and the Father raised him from the dead. And that Spirit which we have of God, the Holy Spirit that has that power, dwells inside of us. Amazing. It dwells inside of us? Really? Yes, really. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. And he goes on to explain in that passage how that if that power is working in us, we are not subject to sin. Meaning we don't have to be bound. We are not controlled. And if we compare all the scriptures when I say we're not subject to sin, it doesn't mean that we will never sin or cannot sin. We cannot live in sin. I think as we clearly heard there in the opening message, it doesn't mean that we have passed the boundaries of the possibility to sin. But we are not under the dominion of sin. May look at that a bit later, but let's turn now. I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read a small portion out of that. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. This whole chapter is in regard to the resurrection, but let's read from verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 
for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And we'll stop reading uh, there. Now this, while that also touches on my second point, I'm still here on the first point, that it changes our life. But do you see how um, how tremendous, how, how all-encompassing this, this thing is of when Christ subdued death and took control over death. Remember in Revelation he said he has the keys of hell and of death. And here it talks about having all power and put down all rule, all authority and power. He must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, let's consider the other enemy that we have, and that is our nature, our propensity to sin. In Romans chapter 8, he likens that to us being in bondage. Our, our body, our fleshly nature controls us. It has dominion over us. It tells us what to do. It tells us that we're never going to do what is right. It tells us that you have to sin. There's no way you can avoid it. These are what the appetites of the flesh tell you. But Christ hath subdued all enemies. And he has put in us that new life, that power that is able to live above that bondage. 